I've noticed a trend with a lot of the local bands lately that I've gone to see as well as the ones that I found through like Spotify and various social medias. So here's my question. Taylor Swift playing pop punk music. What band do you feel like she would cover more than anyone else if she were playing covers of a pop punk band? Is this a serious question? I mm. I would I would like a serious answer cuz I I I feel personally she does love, you know, a good vocal point of course with a lot of her music. So I would think something like All Time Low would probably fit a lot of her genre, but frankly, I think Green Day would probably be the more obvious choice just because of the popularity sake. I I would I would really think it would be something more on the emo pop punk side, maybe like a little more My Chemical Romance, maybe just because a lot of her stuff is definitely more written from the heart. So maybe she wants to kind of go with that and heartbreak and everything. I mean, yeah, it's a good question. Alex? Um, Personally, I think she'd be kind of a, maybe a leftover crack fan. Okay. Um, you know, like so just some, something really yeah. out of left field, really hardcore. You know, <laughs> I, I, she should cover Darkest Hour. You know, I think it'd be amazing. <laughs> All right. I, I, I didn't I didn't want to have anything too obscene because of the band we're covering today. So uh, I genuinely think it'd be more uh, she would go for more female empowerment. It'd be a female fronted punk band. So it would have to either be Paramore, Evanescence or even uh, crap. What are they called? Uh, forgetting their name but there's a lot of female fronted ones so like halt uh maybe even early halsey when there was a lot more punk instead of pop do you think she would do any hole covers i could see her doing hole no. yeah. yeah you could uh, see her covering hole. you could see her covering hole it would have to be a bit more she's not going to go through anything that's going to hurt her image you have to remember that so like it's not going to hurt her image so that's why she wouldn't do hole well, I mean, I think the only reason it would hurt her image is if she actually decided to, uh, you know, emulate Courtney Love. That would really be it. But also at the same time, she's in the news no matter what. So would it really hurt her image? Yeah, because she's she's loved by the media right now. If we're thinking about image and appeal, though, I would say that Hole's sound has never been more popular than it's been since Hole actually came out. A lot That's of this true. stuff that's coming out now sounds very emulate, um, like they're emulating whole. Um, so I definitely think that T Swift um, could, could pull that off and make it marketable. Absolutely. She could definitely do a whole cover. Yeah. I'll add a drum fill for that. <laughs> I, I don't have the snare cape and cymbals with me. So uh, unfortunately can't help you there. Gentlemen, let's parlay. Parlay. What the f was that? <laughs> no bites. John's still on Courtney Love. Parlay? That's the one. Parlay. Parlay. Pittsburgh. <laughs> 
great day, and welcome to Parlay Radio, the podcast that gives you an objective take of the bands you love and love to hate. Gentlemen, I'm going to say introductions all around, and then I'm going to introduce our very special guest. Introductions all around. Jay Bain, a redneck <laughs> from Jacksonville. I'm John Coleman, and I just found out that uh, the polyhumorous is a skin, and I learned that because of Breaking Benjamin. Thank you. And I'm Devin Hughes, and I wonder why I hired John some days. But I think it's for good cause. You know, help the needy where you can. Wait, did you say hired as in I'm supposed to be getting paid? Oh. I think you did say about that. that part. Yeah, You're paid yeah. in our friendship. I never got your direct deposit information, so, you know, I can't go. You guys are getting that. paid? Right. I don't believe you submitted the proper W9. Um... <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into it today, uh, a couple things I do want to cover. I am going to mention a small business that does need to be noticed. Elle's Kitchen is a small business based out of Rhode Island. Elle provides luxury raw bar services and specializes in locally raised shellfish, offering sustainable food practices. Elle can be contacted at Elle's Kitchen with three N's at gmail.com, found on Instagram at Elle's Kitchen R-I and on Facebook at the same name, or you can call or text her at 401-340-6009. Links will be provided in this episode's description. And additionally, because he is a special guest, you've already heard his voice a few times by the time you're hearing this, we are joined today by the founder of this next organization, Upbeat GNV. Upbeat GNV is a DIY volunteer organization based in Gainesville, Florida, dedicated to the cause of bringing mental wellness to our vibrant music community. Research is proving something we've all known since seemingly the dawn of time. Musicians and music industry professionals struggle at a higher than average rate of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and suicidal ideation. Upbeat GNV is here to help. If you head to upbeatgnv.org, you can find a resource guide or organizations that offer reduced cost mental health treatment for Gainesville and state of Florida residents and additional free national resources for anyone not in Florida. You can also find links to help out with their community outreach section and additional mental health programs. You can find Upbeat GNV on social media like Instagram at Upbeat GNV on Facebook or contact via email at help at UpbeatGNV.org. Head to their website as well, UpbeatGNV.org, to find links to resources as well as a contact box at the bottom to see how you can receive or give help today. Now I can introduce our guests. Yeah, I know I went really long with that, but I figured it was worth it. Sounds I, like a good service. I believe in your cause, my friend. Absolutely. Oh, thanks, man. Our very special guest today, Alex Klausner, is the drummer for punk band Rehasher and the founder of the previously mentioned Upbeat GNV. Rehasher recently released a new single, Rabbit Hole, available on streaming services right now. He is also here additionally as a guest because he is a graduate with a master's degree in popular music from Leeds Beckett University in the UK. Please welcome to the show, Alex Klausner! Woo! That was definitely the longest slash coolest intro I've received uh, yet, so thank you. I appreciate that. Much better than the one I did whenever we did the interview a few years ago. I, I think I just kind of like, was like, he's the drummer for Rehasher. Please welcome Alex Eisner. Hey, man. Short and sweet, too. I like that, too. That can be good. That's good. You I, know, I, brevity I... can be great. Um, but yeah, let's do, let's do a deep dive 
into Limp Biscuit. I'm I mentioned this before the episode that I think this is my first time ever like officially appearing as a graduate of you know um, a, a popular music uh, history program. And my first act is going to be to talk about Limp Biscuit. And I just love that. That's great. It's very appropriate. It it. I think, you know, it's probably one of the better topics that you could find because what better than to find something that has, uh, I would say, an aggressively argumentative stance on popularity. Because if you do something like Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, that's far more progressive and a lot of people really would agree with the popularity, whereas Limp Biscuit, it's hit or miss. Yeah, so no, I, that's, that's huge. That's a big reason why I think we should talk about them because I think that there aren't a lot of people that respect them the way that these other bands are respected. I think they get um, a lot of hate. Um, a lot of people will just write them off as sucking or being clowns or whatever. And maybe they're doing so for some different reasons, whatever, but we'll, we'll get into all of that. I'm really excited to do it with you guys and hear your stances as well. I did see a really cool quote in all of my research that said there's two types of people in the world. There's people that don't like Limp Biscuit, and there's people that like fun. <laughs> you mean like band fun? No, John. Actual no. fun. The band fun is not fun. No, at all. no I think that's, that's the irony of the fun. band name. No, but the name it's is ironic. fun, so they are fun. But fun doesn't happen anymore with them. I mean, Limp Biscuit's still around. Where's fun? Around? Doing what? Because it's clearly not music. Either that or they, you know, went from the sold out arenas to the clubs of 20 people. That's actually not, I want to point out, that's actually not true. Nate Nate Ruest has since gone on to, you know, he's collaborating with a bunch of pop stars. And the guy who was doing a lot of the production for them, uh, Jack Antonoff, has since produced records for Taylor Swift, the 1975 he's like white she he's like become like her her like musical wingman almost so um yeah uh fun fun has um has been doing some things just not as fun oh that's crazy i i was just making a joke but no that's ridiculous i don't even know that also it's fun period god we're all getting it wrong (laughs) it's like the band what's the band that has an exclamation point at the end of their name um there's a few um, There's quite a few against me. Gainesville Fuller, a shout out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lord so, Grace. Um, all right. I'm going to kick off a little bit of the discussion by kind of saying this um, to you guys, which is I feel like this podcast kind of has its finger on the pulse of the truth, okay. but is just slightly missing it. So here's what I'm going to say, right, is the premise here is we're talking about bands that are, are that suck, basically, and we're saying why they don't suck or we're trying to deal with them in an objective way um versus a subjective way right which i think why i say we got the finger on the pulse because this is the question i want to pose to anyone that thinks limp biscuit sucks okay anyone that thinks anybody sucks is whose authority do we draw on to say music sucks or is good exactly i mean that's Who is actually the... yeah that, that's, that's, yeah, that's that's actually what we covered. We um we recently uh, last week actually recorded our six month anniversary episode. We're we're gonna have a couple release in between that and this one. Um, it's a little out of order. We had a few lost recordings that we had to bring back up, remix, and 
yeah, not really in the regular placement, but it's okay because, I mean, as long as we report something, that's fine. Um, in terms of the music itself, we've never been one to criticize that because we know that music is subjective itself. You like what you like, you don't like what you don't like, and that's totally okay. I myself am not a big country person after like 1988, um, except for, you know, Garth Brooks, really, which is more poppy than, than country for the most part anyway, but that's, that's just me. If you like country, that's totally cool. Like what you like. It's never been about that. What we do is we actually take the bands that everybody knows, whether or not they're liked or disliked, and we say, okay, here's criteria. There is criticism that is warranted towards these bands sometimes. Is it really based on the music? Is it based on their personality? Is right, right. Outside factors, right. Right, right, right. So yeah. we look at everything that could be an outside factor that has determined their popularity as well as de determine any perchance criticism that they might have received. Right, right. Based on right. them personally as well as presentationally and see whether or not do they really deserve that criticism or is it people just being a little more picky is a nice way yeah. I could put it. So, yeah, yeah that, that's kind of where we come from with it. And because, I mean, there's been bands that we've all discussed between each other that, you know, John's a huge, huge Muse fan, right? Now, I like Muse, but I, I haven't seriously listened to them in like 10 years, maybe. And I don't have anything against them. It's just not something that I would listen to every day. Yeah, absolutely, um, man. Um, I would say to, to, to further this point here, Mm -hmm. is that what we have to do i feel and what we do a lot in academia right is we don't we don't sit there and say okay well i'm i'm studying this music so i'm going to make this determination about whether the rolling stones were good or bad or taylor swift is good or bad what i'm going to do is i'm going to look at that as an artifact of the culture that it was produced in and i'm going to look at what this music is telling me about the time that it came up in what are the circumstances that allowed it to grow? What are the things that are happening in culture around it? Because if we really look at music and culture, it's a symbiotic relationship. They're not in a vacuum. Music right. is not produced in a vacuum. It is about the world. It is artists com combining their experiences and using sound to, to tell us something about what's going on, right? And so, you know, I always love this, like, you know, the, oh, the music influences the culture in the 60s. It was, the music was influencing everything. It's like, that's not entirely true. The culture is influencing the musicians who are then influencing the culture and round and round and round it goes. You can't divorce them from each other. And so the politics matter, the economics matter, the, the attitudes of society matter, race matters. And to me, Limp Biscuit is a story about race, race relations. This is a story about white subcultures and black subcultures that begin to find fusion in the 1990s after basically the walls that were segregating these that were basically constructed by the music industry, but that walled off white kids from black kids like and white music from black music it was labeled that way people thought of it this way we still think of it this way like um 
there are genres that are for black people and there's genres for white people and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what is with this segregation? Why is the music industry segregated this way in like 2020? Like we should be well past this by now. And um, that's the process that really began to happen in the 1980s and 1990s. And so that is the environment in which Limp Biscuit is coming up in, where suddenly white kids are getting exposure to black artists and black culture, black musical culture, and in a way that they weren't before. Now, I'm going to pose this question. Why do you think that people couldn't get access to those musics in the same way that we can today? We didn't have the internet to share it on a single point platform back then. You know, if, yeah, if you wanted exactly. black music back then, you'd have to go into the ghetto to their record store to get their records. Because, you know, uh, well, they were not going to sell in, the, in a suburbia. Well, they may sell it in suburbia, but you wouldn't have the marketing of that music toward yeah. you to really be able to, like, vibe with it. You weren't getting you weren't getting that on your radio station. And I think, like, the the difference between a time in which everything's happening on the radio and everything's happening on you know, the internet is a really important distinction to draw because right now, like, you know, a kid in middle America can go on and hear some of the like hardest gangster rap, right? Like on the planet, you know, on YouTube, but that did not exist because those musics weren't being played in middle America at that time. This isn't music that was getting like top 40 radio play and radio mattered because there was not this this access point to music that was only just beginning to happen with napster morpheus to download mp3 all that was just starting to happen so the other thing is this is a time of tight industry control this is a time where there is a there is a hard gate to being able to release your music you have to get an executive to say, yes, I think that's something that the mass market is going to dig to get a major label contract. That was necessary at that time to get your music out. Now you can go on YouTube, you can record the crappiest song ever, you know, song I think is personally crappy. You can record a song that's very crappy to me in your bedroom and put it on the internet and everyone can dig it, right? And that's like, how, that's how Lil Nas X broke the music industry. Now, we have this way that you can get in through the back door. But back then, that didn't exist. So the really important thing to remember is Limp Biscuit. this isn't just niche music, right? This isn't something that where it's like, oh, you know, it's just some DIY punks recording in a garage, and then some guys on the internet are listening to it, and they found this niche fan base like my band. That's what I mean, we have to, we don't have a big fan base. We're not getting top 40 radio play. We exist because we've got a small audience and that audience really digs it, right? And nowadays you can make a career off that. Back then, no way, man. If a thousand people were listening to your band, like you couldn't monetize that. That wasn't gonna happen. Limp Biscuit was one of the most ubiquitous bands in the country. These guys were number putting out number one singles on top 40 radio getting played everywhere. And on top of that, we're getting put on like, now that's what I call music CDs, which at the time were a great way for you to get a, like a playlist mix, right? Of like all the stuff that was a hit. Um, and they were getting put there next to Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, whatever. Like people were, people were listening to this. I was listening to this when I was a kid, I was 10 years old 
And when I was buying now, that's what I call music CDs, right? Like I was getting exposed to these sounds of Limp Biscuit, which is a band that I would never gone to the record store and picked off the, the rack or whatever. So this music was getting access, like premium play. And so that's another thing to remember about these guys is this isn't just some niche band we're talking about. This is one of the biggest smash bands in the country at the time. So um, I'll leave it to you guys to kind of digest what I just said, but I wanted to paint the picture of what's going on in the background at an industry level. We can get into the race stuff in a second, but like, you know, that that is definitely the background. I'm, I'm gonna point out a couple quick things. First off, I didn't do a band intro and I kind of want to leave that as the band intro. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, what better way to describe it than a man who knows his stuff. So I, I will add Limbiscuit is an American rap rock band from Jacksonville, Florida, formed in 1994 by vocalist Fred Durst, guitarist Wes Borland, drummer John Otto, bassist Sam Rivers, and then later on uh, turntablist DJ Lethal. There we go. I'll leave it at that. But uh, additionally, I do want to add that when I proposed the idea of Alex coming onto the show to him, the first words out of his mouth were, I'm going to defend that rhythm section to the very end. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, I will definitely go to bat. I will go to bat for the whole band at this point after doing my research, but um, especially John Otto, um, the drummer, yes, he yes. was laying one, down I would groups. agree with that 1,000%. And I, I'm, I'm going to say one more thing. And this is probably, we always say we're an objective take on popular bands. What I could probably say is that we're a half-assed biography hour on whatever band it is we're covering because we want to point out numbers as to like, okay, they're popular. We want to point out lyrics like, okay, this is lyrical content. And then controversies is like, this is really just a brief description over things that have happened over the years that may or may not be deemed excusable or inexcusable by the public eye. Take it as you will. Parlay is the aspect of discussion and arguing. It's basically a court hearing. So are we really the judge jury on this matter or are we just the attorneys presenting the facts? That's really all we kind of take it as. So really we have our judgment at the end on a personal perspective, but we always leave it up to the audience to make that decision. So Jay, I'm sorry, you're going to say something. I'm going to go ahead and preface this entire episode and my involvement in it by saying, yes, Parlay Radio is always objective we make sure that we support any and every bit of facts out there this episode i'm subjective as f <laughs> this is my band i grew up on them i will defend them tooth and nail to the bitter end period yeah it's it's one thing when we all come in with a bias to whoever it is especially if they're like contrived i guess uh i i like that we've all changed our own minds with the research that we've done with a Nothing lot of these. Well, Nothing not Limp Biscuit. I'm talking about previous artists that we've covered. Oh, yeah. We've all kind of changed our mind a little bit here and there. Some are almost like too straightforward to, for us to change. Um, reference back to Kid Rock. <clears throat> reference <clears throat> back to... Well, the one that kind of weirded me out that did change my mind for the worst is probably 30 Seconds to Mars, honestly. But I, we're not going to discuss that here. Look, uh, I'm telling you, there's still not a cult. There's no basis for... There's no facts proving it's a cult. 
So, oh man! Hey kids, oh, see the thirty seconds tomorrow's episode for more. Episode three. Uh, so, ironically, not thirty. Should have been episode thirty. We need to do a. We need to redo thirty seconds tomorrow's on episode thirty. When when we get to episode thirty, we can we can refresh ourselves on that. If anything new has happened, if they've released a new album, then we can recover and try to find something. It'll be a quick mini episode, about. maybe. But. To get this party started, uh, we are going to go through our content first. So, uh, John, I believe you have the numbers this week, my friend. All right. I uh, do have the numbers. And let me open up my window. I only have one screen because I'm on a laptop. So bear with me here. Professor. All right. I'm sorry, Nicole. You have the numbers this week. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. As Devin here said, Limp Bizkit was formed in 1994 in Jacksonville, Florida. As of right now, they have estimated sold over a 40 million albums worldwide, which does put them out in the higher section of our artists who've sold albums sales-wise. Now, they have released one remix album, one live album, and one EP, three compilation albums, six studio albums with 26 singles, three promotional singles, and 28 music videos, and two video live albums, which are of, like, live like live albums oh and by the way i want to point out that the title of their most recent album they released is still sucks okay which is going to be a, a, a thing we're going to talk about later on in this in this episode with that they have the uh as of right now on streaming services they stream on monthly or between 15 and 25 million unique visitors stream their music so that means you know one person could it doesn't have an exact amount of numbers of like streamed but off of spotify right now they have over break stuff cumulative history on spotify has over 417 million listens which is actually really high up there for spotify they have been nominated for and won multiple awards. They've been nominated for three Grammys, including Best Hard Rock Performance, Best Rock Album, and Best Hard Rock Performance, which are for Nookie, Significant Other, and Take a Look Around. They've been nominated for three American Music Award Music Awards for Favorite Alt Artists and winning one of them in 2002. Uh, for the big awards that we do look at before, because we don't really like the Grammy Awards, they have been nominated for two Hungarian Music Awards for Best Foreign Rock Album one award for International Dance Music Award, which was for Roland, two iHeart Music Awards, one Kerrang! Hall of Fame nominee award for Hall of Fame, which was they won in 2009, multiple MTV Music Awards for all over the world, from Italy, Europe, Japan, and Brazil. Not in America, which is weird. I do want to point out to you, by the way, and I was, I was looking for a good place to do this, um, because you mentioned Kerrang, I was going to tag this on at the end, but they were awarded Kerrang's worst album of the year in Ooh. 2000. And Fred Durst also won Arse of the Year from Kerrang! magazine <laughs> in the year 2000. For, um, and uh, they also won Entertainment Weekly's worst album title of 2000 for Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water. So um, I just want to add that to their list of accolades. It's fairly deserving, though. That's such an awful news. Yeah, I I uh, I didn't add it 
to the end uh, discussion when it comes to controversies, but literally he says, yeah, it's a nice way of saying we're a bunch of <laughs> 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 and, and actually, John, I've got a couple more awards that you can add on to there as well for individuals, oh. each individual in the band. So Wes Borland was voted the number 37 guitarist in Total Guitars Top 100 Guitarist of All Time. Sam wow. Rivers. Yeah, I didn't get that far. It's Sam awesome. Rivers voted best bass player at the 2000 Gibson Awards. Ooh. Fred Durst has been nominated in 2020 for worst director for a Golden Razzie for the movie The Fanatic. Always the Golden Razzies, baby. Finally, we got one. <laughs> awesome. John, John Otto came in 10th place with his daughter on the 2022 CBS dance competition show, Come Dance With Me. It's Aww. There's actually an adorable dance that they both did to the song Rollin', where John Otto was dressed similar to Fred Durst in it. Oh, God. And then DJ Lethal, he was in House of Pain. That's it. Yeah, you don't really need to argue that. <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to. This also... isn't an award or number or anything, but the band was even brought up in Sonic the Hedgehog 2 uh, yep. last year, which is, uh, to me, it's a big deal. I, uh, that is a big deal. I, I will say one other thing about Mr. Uh, John Otto. My mother used to work with his mother at uh, our local community college. That's She's dope. a very nice lady. She's a very nice lady. I've never met John, but. I, I probably would get on with him pretty well. I don't know. Just fun little thing. John, anything yeah, else? Uh, so That's really all I got for numbers there. Now, why do we think those numbers are so big for Limp Bizkit? To me, I believe that part of it is, you know, they took new metal. They were like the first, like, I'm not going to say like they weren't the first, because but they were probably the most early, severely like influential new metal band. And when you have artists such as Lincoln Park, who pretty much straight out the gate were top level artists for the entire time they were around, and they still are around today. They're always on the charts, even back then. And you know, if somebody like Chester and Mark Shinoda going out there and saying, like, we take a lot of influence from Lincoln Park. Whoa, 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 I mean, whoa, 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 whoa. You just said Mark Shinoda. People are not automatically going to go, it's like, Mark Shinoda. Mike Shinoda, sorry. You disrespectful twat. What the f? Well, if you took David Bowie away from me, so I have to do this one now. You're oh, the one who's like, we can never cover Linkin Park because too many people love them, which I agree on. And no, no, no. You have to disrespect the good name of Mike Shinoda. Mother <laughs> Anybody else, I'll take. You can say Fred Dorst. I'd be okay with that. But <laughs> Fred Dorst. There you go. Fred Dorks. <laughs> I think to me, what what made Limp Bizkit so such um, possible, and I think that this is also needs to be mentioned when we talk about that industry control. Like, why would the industry go seek out Limp Bizkit, right? Like, what what's making them go? Oh yeah, that's something that people are gonna turn on, turn on to. Yeah, that that music right there. Like nowadays, but. Nirvana, I mean, in the 90s, yep. suddenly turns on everybody to this idea of like underground music that's happening. Like people are starting to go out like, where do we find the next Nirvana? So they start picking up bands like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, all of those bands in that way, right? So it's like people are looking for like weird stuff. People are looking for underground countercultural stuff. 
the 90s, if you were guys probably remember this growing up in the 90s, right? We grew up with like skateboarding, like our commercials, all these kids are like skateboarding and stuff. And like, it's like cool to be different. It's like they're marketing this idea to kids of like alternative stuff. Skateboarding is becoming cool. Like anything that made you an outcast is all of a sudden like big. And it becomes, the counterculture becomes an, an underground and alternative culture becomes marketable for like the first time in like mainstream America, right? Yeah, so like, you media, like uh, the, the media was embracing the deviancy idea, the idea of something that's deviant. And yeah. like, so Fred Dursk in their like war, pride, great stuff type mentality. And like, you take that embracing it with like, social clash between, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever you want to do in there. Like, they all embrace that culture of, like, punk, new metal, like, saggy pants, backwards cap, Jinkos! You know, stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, like, think about it. It was a time when, like, what's going on MTV, what's going on Top 40 Radio is punk. Blink-182, yeah. Sum 41, like, bands like that that are saying, you know, yeah, you know, like Rage Against the Machine had already come on and had big hits with like Off literally sticking critical day. race theory in their lyrics. I mean, you know, um, so we have a time at which, you know, these alternative musics can really, truly get big. And so, yeah, that was that's kind of my take on how they became what they became, or at least the environment that set it up, right? I really think one of the things that really pushed Limp Bizkit in the forefront was, you know, you've, you've at the time, look at the rest of the music industry. Pop music was filled with bubblegum pop. Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, 98 Degrees, Jessica Simpson, all these bubblegum pop artists that are putting out music that none of them wrote, that none of them did any instrumentation for. They're literally just a producer's product that they are pushing out to in mass to the to the people and i think you had that coupled with millennials finally starting to come into their teenage years we have disposable income because maybe we're doing a little you know lawn mowing or you know you've also got the gen xers the later gen xers finally like making more money too and a lot of the people that weren't into the bubblegum pop were looking for something, anything else that was different. And Limp Biscuit really was the antagonist to bubblegum pop. They were completely opposite, you know? They tried their hardest to go against the system, go against the grain. And, you know, it ended up making not only them, but also Fred Durst specifically, almost a lightning rod for a lot of the controversies, which we'll discuss later on. And it's, you know, it, it was a perfect time, you know, like you were saying, extreme was everywhere. Everything was so cool and hip and extreme and new extreme mountain dude. You know, <laughs> all these sports, things. Extreme, extreme Razor yeah. Scooter. You know, no. the X Games was big. Yeah. You had BMX, Razor right? Scooters. Everything kind yeah. of all Ankle, went. Shin Buster 3000s. Everything kind of all went together to really create this huge groundswell that allowed a band like Limp Biscuit to become the biggest band at the time, period. There was no other band that were as big as they were. No. They knocked off the Backstreet Boys on Billboard, on album sales, and on Total Request Live, which if you guys don't <laughs> remember, Total Request Live was f***ing 
huge. I remember the yep. week they yep. won. Yep. Because my best friend Darby and I were on the phone with, I'm gonna, I haven't talked to her in years, but shout out to Ashley Robinson. We were on the phone with her and we were waiting to see if they hit number one for Nookie and they did and we screamed it into the phone <laughs> just because we were like, yeah, f you Backstreet Boys, f you. And we were way too excited about that for being 12. So I think that was the other thing. I needed to step back and also realize that Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit, they, they weren't just limited in the range of new metal, rap, that kind of extremism. They were such a wide range of music as well. So like we covered it under our Google Dolls episode, like Fred Durst and Fred uh, uh, Resnick. Are you talking about John yeah. Resnick? John Resnick, John yeah. Resnick. yeah. Fred Durst and John Resnick, they, they performed together together like lead singer of goo goo dolls you know not hardcore at all so why don't French you they played together at the 9-11 memorial like in 2001 they covered pink floyd of all bands like like unheard of like fred durst's musical range is just super it's not isolated like a lot of these other music artists at that time were very like this is my swim lane i'm gonna stay in it fred durst was like the whole damn pool is my freaking swim lane at that time. I'm also gonna mention there's, you know, not just his collaboration with the Goo Goo Dolls. This guy went further than that. I mean, he went on stage with Christina Aguilera at the time. I now, forgot about that, yep. Nowadays, okay, we have this, this. Um, I would say there's a much friendlier attitude towards women um, and just uh, like bubblegum pop in general um, among like lovers of, of harder edge music. Like I see a lot of my punk friends go to bat for Taylor Swift, right? In the same breath that they talk about, you know, their favorite bands. And that would never have happened 20 years ago. Like dudes would never come out and be like, oh yeah, I did Christina Aguilera sometimes. Why? Because we get made fun of by other guys because it was a much different time for masculinity and the, the like the toxic masculine culture that existed. And we are going to get into that when we talk about yep. Limp Bizkit's controversies. Yep. But this was actually a controversy for them. Fred Durst took a lot of heat for performing with Christina Aguilera. And basically what he said was, hey dude, F you. Yep. He's like, you know what? I, I'm gonna play with Christina Aguilera. Why? Because she's a baller. She's a great singer. She's gonna be an amazing, like legendary singer one day. Sure enough, he was right. And you know, like, I feel like at the time, that was punk rock. That was not something, that was punk rock even in the world of punk rock, okay? Yeah. And we may, people may frown on Fred Durst and say, oh, he's a sellout. He, you know, at that time, that was a big deal, like doing anything commercial, you know, if you were in the rock realm was kind of like anathema. It was like, because of the strong anti-commercialist stance in, you know, rock subcultures. So like, I, I just had to throw that out there as well and just say, Fred Durst is a guy who was unafraid to collaborate outside of the, the rock subculture. He, he was really a hero in that regard. And Rindy, yeah, you're spot on. That's such a really good point. I never really thought of it in that regards, but like this last year, like when was the first big collaboration Metallica did was like, last year with Miley Cyrus, when they played together with Miley Cyrus. Like, it took them 
40 odd years to get to the point of where like they weren't afraid to collaborate outside of their genre. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the Miley Cyrus thing was killer. Her version, Nothing Else Matters, was amazing. Props to that. Like, f***ing awesome. Um, sorry, I don't know if I can swear, but I think... I, I mean, anyway. I censor it for comedy purposes, but I, I really don't right. care. It's cool. just it's <laughs> like, it's just like when I'm going through the editing process, I'm just like, ah, mark that. Alright, mark that. Jay, damn it. Mark that. Always me. It's always, always the rants. Actually, the worst uh, one we had was probably um, of the Avenged Sevenfold. Sevenfold. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, it was Mike. <laughs> he started going, <laughs> we, we and love, I just we love you, stop. Mike. I know you're probably listening to this, but uh, yeah, it's all your fault. And I know next time we have you on, it's gonna be all your fault again, and you're gonna make it even worse. Uh, <laughs> uh, who had no, who had lyrics? I think Devin had lyrics. No, nope. Mr. J had lyrics. So uh, yeah, let, let's break down some songs, there, buddy. All right, hell yeah, let's do it. All right, so got a. Normally, we only do two songs. I'm actually going to cover three today. Um, so the first one we're going to cover is Nookie. Uh, Nookie was the first single off of the 1999 Significant Other album. According to songfacts.com, Nookie is about an old girlfriend of Fred Durst who betrayed him. When Durst was getting his career started in Los Angeles, he was sending money home to his girlfriend to pay the bills. Instead, she used the money to treat her and another man to drugs and hotel rooms. In this song, Durst explains that he knew what was going on, but he stayed with her for the sex. That's the nookie. He did it all for it. Is that what that means? Yes, yes. that's exactly yes. what it means. Wow. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Well, John so. was five whenever the song came out, so of course he wasn't going to know what it was. And if he did, cookies. then I, I would assume he'd have a much more mature personality at this point, but here we are. He probably heard the Cookie Monster version and was like, oh, I did it all for the cookie. Oh, I did it all for the cookie. <laughs> so Nookie was the first single of Limp Biscuits to chart on the Billboard Hot 100. It went to number 80 on July 31st, 1999, and it was on the chart for 11 weeks. Um, it was number one on Total Request many Total Request Live many times in the summer of 1999. Um, couple crazy things with the song. Wes Borland actually plays a custom four-string guitar throughout it, and if you take a look at it, it's a really like super cool-looking guitar too. The song itself, it, the chorus is extremely sophomoric. I will admit, like I did it all for the nookie, so you can stick it up your yeah. Like that's, it's childish. It's it's very frat boy esque. It's fun to scream. It is really fun to sing along with though. But if you look at the lyrics themselves, the verse is actually pretty insightful. You know, it talks about, you know, why did it take so long? to figure it out everybody knew what was going on i didn't understand and that's that's something i think everybody can kind of understand and go along with you know who hasn't stayed with someone for way too long for the wrong reasons right let's let's not let's not get this twisted either okay like who raise your hand all right if you can understand doing it all for the nookie everyone can understand that right because that's universal Every human in the world is driven by like, you know, like our basic needs, food, water, sex, love, whatever, like you call it, like that, that's a universal experience, right? We all have gone to 
extreme lengths <laughs> at times to most, get sex, right? So most like, of my terrible decisions in life involved a beautiful woman. Dude, I would probably say that like every woman, man, it does not matter. That's not a gender exclusive idea. Everyone makes terrible decisions <laughs> in the name of continuing their relationship, of, of getting sex, of, of whatever it is, like it, it, it's it's uh, it's a powerful driver of human behavior. You know what I mean? So like Fred Durst is tapping into a universal human experience when he says that as sophomoric as it is. We're all horn dogs. That's that's the nice way of saying it. We're all horn Some dogs. more than others. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> for no, all those out no, in no, almost land, 30 years i would I agree with that <laughs> just about broke my arm pointing at myself so oh, yeah <laughs> all right so second song we're gonna cover is boiler uh boiler was the last single off the chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water album in 2000 and according to songfacts.com again this song is about the frustration and confusion that comes along with being left by someone you love, essentially being played. Um, the main reason I want to go over this is because there's two really cool things about this song. First is the music video, and if you've never seen it, it's a damn fever dream. It's got everything from a giant animated hot dog monster to oh, yeah. a naked animated Fred Durst running through a tunnel to West Borland's head falling off to a worm-filled burger being eaten. It's it's crazy. And the video was actually banned from uh, MTV due to um, a couple of things. One was there was a scene where there's multiple couples having sex and also the scene where West Borland's head falls off. It looks quite graphic. The, the um, special effects they used for this video were absolutely crazy. It's like my dreams after taking melatonin. Right? I mean, so, hey, melatonin helps you get to sleep. It is an over-the-counter available drug, but good Lord, the dreams you have on melatonin. So, and, and to me, the other reason to really bring up this song is, you know, everyone talks about how Limp Bizkit's music is trash. This song to me, Boiler, might be one of their best songs. Um, musically, it's, you know, everyone says, oh, there's no substance to Limp Bizkit. Just listen to this song. The rhythm section is the tightest you will ever get in any new metal band. You know, even Fred's voice and lyrics are well done for the song. You know, lyrically, it's a song that has more depth and heart than most of Limp Bizkit's catalog. Um, the, the whole feel of the song is almost, it, it's a little Tool-esque, like the band Tool. Like it's, it's, it's engulfing, like you can listen to it and just kind of hear the soundscape all around you. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, one of my favorite songs personally by Limp Bizkit. And a uh, little side note to uh, Louder Sound and Kerrang voted uh, Boiler to be the number four and number seven, respectively, uh, greatest Limp Biscuit songs. I think one thing that I can really appreciate about Fred is his songwriting. And Alex and I have talked about this before. We talked about it a bit with Scott Weiland is he takes a very simple approach to songwriting. 
it's just a simple kind of clear-cut straightforward story that he puts out there that anybody can associate with easily he doesn't beat around the bush he doesn't try to use a bunch of euphemisms or analogies or anything like that he tells it simply as is and gives it very clear meaning and direction and i can really appreciate that because Sometimes the simplest songs, as far as lyrics are concerned, are probably one of the the best you can listen to. So I, I can really, really appreciate that. Well, Fred Durst was, he was an everyman. That was what made him so lovable and also so easy to kind of take shots at. He was just like you or me. He wasn't um, an amazing musician. He wasn't this or that. Hell, if you listen to interviews with him, he wanted to be a filmmaker. He just got into playing in bands because he thought he could start directing music videos and become a film director from that. I'm a simple man. Yeah. Straight out of Jacksonville. He he turned it it into one of the biggest rock bands in, in the 90s easily. So impressive. I was going to say, man, I mean, you kind of talked on some some interesting stuff, and I, I guess I was going to save this for the end of the, the lyrics section, but um, I think that this is an important, there's a couple important things that are happening. One is we got to remember, Fred Durst comes from a bit slightly different tradition than a lot of us do. We grew up in the rock subculture, okay? Fred Durst grew up a hip-hop fan. I mean, he liked rock music, of course. I mean, that's that comes out through Limp Bizkit, and he could participate in rock music. But he grew up really, really liking hip hop, skating, the culture that was around hip hop, and he grew up in that culture. He was bullied for it, by the way, a lot through his life uh, growing up. He took a lot of heat because he was a guy, he was a white kid who liked rap. I mean, and I know that there's some people out there that might be like, oh, you know, he's a white rapper, he's appropriating culture, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he really had a passion for it. Whether you want to say he's appropriating or whatnot, he was really about it and he took bullets for it. I mean, not literal bullets, but like he suffered for it. Yeah, um, he wasn't and so yeah. He's not, oh, he's not, he's not, you know, God, God hope he never su- su- suffers that fate. Um, but. My point being like, you know, I think that understanding that with that perspective of where he came from made me kind of appreciate that there is an honestness to this music. Now, there's another thing that we need to talk about when it comes to lyricism, okay? Is that there's two kinds, there's, there's a, well, there's a lot of kinds of rap, but there's, there's two forms of rap that I think we both can agree that we've experienced. We've experienced conscious rap and we've experienced club rap. And those are very two different, those are really two different approaches to how you are going to write your song. Conscious rap is, you know, common, right? Like, you know, very thought. thoughtful, heady. It's it's all about, you know, lyricism, wordplay, abstract I- ideas, right? Turning your brain on. Then there's Lil John, okay? Yeah. Lil John is about turning your brain off. Lil John is about going to the club. Right? Lil John is about partying down and getting down and having fun. Okay? Now, Rage Against the Machine is conscious rap rock. And we all love Rage Against the Machine. No one hates on Rage Against the Machine. Everybody's like, oh, that's so hardcore. That's so innovative. That's so cool. Blah, blah, blah. And then everybody hate turns around and in the same breath, they hate on Limp Bizkit. Yep. Okay. So what's up with that? Well, it's to me, it's this difference. Conscious rap versus club rap. Fred Durst is doing club rap. 
He's doing Lil. He's he is rock and roll Lil John. Whereas there are rock and roll common, he's rock and roll Lil John. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is stuff for turning your. It's kind of about turning your brain off and just going keep rolling, 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 rolling. What? You know what I'm saying? Like it's it, it, and and he would tell you. Dude, if you're taking this seriously, you're doing this wrong. Like if you're sitting here looking for artistry, you know, and high art, okay, go somewhere else. That's not what we're doing. Like it's about making music that people can connect with. And then the other thing is it exists at this intersection of culture. It exists at an intersection of hip hop and rock subcultures, which is why it works back then, because it appealed to people that were looking for that intersection of culture. And I think a large reason why it became critically panned over the years is as I think like we kind of fall like in rock culture, we fall into this trap of like, it's gotta be technical, it's gotta be deep, it's gotta have this certain musicianship to it, or it's not cool, you know, or that's lame because, you know, it's girly or whatever. Like, you know, like we do that all the time and it's like, man can't we just have some music that's about turning your brain off like too you know let's can't, be honest though like rock too? and punk are like some of the most like flip floppy like people for like not musicians but like band wise we'll be like well we need it needs to be technical it can't be too technical like cool but it also can't be so untechnical like jam band like fish where there is no technical to it like it, it but if you're too technical well, I, would, like, no, I would argue awesome. fish fish has a ton of technicality yeah you may not you may not like the way the notes are or think the notes are arranged perfect. in the most technically perfect way but there's a lot of musicianship that you that is required most people will listen to like limb biscuit stuff and what do they hear they hear the guitarist going like bow, 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 bow. but you know what I mean, what, what's hip hop? Like, you know, those riffs are are really like a lot of the production and stuff are is repetitive. It's very simple. There, a lot of it isn't even necessarily tonal, right? So, like, for them to be able to create those sounds, they may have to play in ways that are not necessarily rock technical, right? To create those sounds, and it, because it. Because it exists in the rock culture, we sit there and we go, oh, yeah, screw those guys. You know, they're not playing, you know, these crazy solos and cool riffs or the the, the fastest beats or whatever. But that doesn't make it any less slamming. I mean, no. you know, um, some of those riffs are really heavy. And if you just remove Fred Durst, if you don't like him, listen to the music. I mean, there's a lot to like that's going on there, especially from John Otto, who, by the way, studied jazz before he became the drummer of Limp Biscuit, And that actually explains why his drumming sounds very technical, complex, very subtle and educated. There's a lot of subtlety to what John Otto is doing. It's not, it's not all in your face technicality. There's a lot of small sound that he's creating when he's playing. A lot of the flack was also like, uh, I mean, this is completely conspiracy, right? Like uh, I'm gonna jump, put my conspiracy tinfoil cap on here, but like, let's just be honest. So like, the media industry at that time was embracing the counterculture that this kind of deviancy mentality because it was appealing to the younger people that were going to buy cds and vinyls and like buy the stuff and go to the shows but like you go in you take a step back and be like all right so like these media moguls are going to be trying to get to the youth 
now all the other people are gonna try and do everything they can to like slam this to end it to be like no this is going against the grain we need you know stop the free thinking you know like yes sir no sir i want my milk and i'm gonna eat my meat before i've had my pudding type mentality right like so like all the other media that's not controlled by the music industry which is like the more older people the white man you know the you know your philosophical old white male that controls the tv news is going to say everything they can to like point people against this you know it's, it's they funny though it's the machine though it's like everybody hated on Rage against the machine besides the youth well i wouldn't say that actually i would say that limp biscuit was getting more corporate support than you know, most bands. Devin's got his his head raised. I think he's gotta he's gonna jump in, man. <laughs> I, I I two things. Uh, number one, um, John. Def- uh, number two, uh, I am actually chiming in because Jay wanted to contribute to this. I, oh. I'm kind of keeping my myself out oh, of it. Thank you. I was I was just letting everybody kind of get their thing out. You know, kind of piggybacking though off of what Alex said about you know the technicality with Limp Biscuit. Most people don't realize Wes Borland and John Otto both attended Douglas Anderson School of the Arts. And if you're familiar with Jacksonville at all, Douglas Anderson or DA is a very prestigious performing arts school. Best of the best go there. It's it's a wonderful school where they teach a lot of things and um, especially music in general. And both of them are extremely talented and educated musicians. And when you look at a bassist like sam rivers he may be one of the most underrated bassists in all of hard rock the dude's phenomenal like his playing is a full one-man soundscape without being too flashy or overbearing he has this ability to add these amazing bass lines to songs without taking attention away from the rest of the song that's really hard to do as a bassist you know you're not only flowing with the drummer but you're also flowing with the guitarist and that's something that very few bassists can actually do let alone do well and he even played guitar on a couple of songs uh on the 2003 results may vary album and if you listen to it it sounds just like something Wes borland would have done i uh, also want to point out Wes borland is currently um acting as a guitarist for danny elfman yes so we're taking somebody who's writing compositions for films and television shows everybody has heard his music everyone if you have ever watched the simpsons you have heard danny elfman if you have ever seen spider-man you've heard danny elfman i mean putting oingo boingo aside you've heard danny elfman at one point in your life and guess who his guitarist is wes (laughs) borland (laughs) so i mean that that should tell you enough about the aspect of what might come across as simple, but very technical aspects of Wes Borland's playing. And but another even... thing about Wes I want to point out too, is he quit Limp Biscuit because it wasn't artistic enough for him. Like he was like, yes. yeah, this music is getting too commercial for me. It's too commercial. I want to just be doing my indie weird stuff. And that was a, that was that, the, this very argument actually became a reason why left west borland was like ah screw this i'm out man <laughs> but even with all the technicality though that limp biscuit has sometimes like you said it's about just being fun club hip-hop rock 
which is why the last song we're going to cover is Rollin' Air Raid Vehicle. Uh, yes. It was the <laughs> second slash third single from 2000's Chocolate Starfish. Um, it was actually released simultaneously, the music video and the single itself, with the song My Generation also. Um, you want to know what the lyrics are about about that song? It's about f***ing having fun. That's it. Yep. Not all of rock and roll has to be thought-provoking. Not all of rock and roll has to be this, oh, we're going to go through everything to make sure that you, you know, settle in on the little nuances of it. No, it was just fun. It's about raising your hands and rolling, rolling. That's that's it. That's all it needed to be. <laughs> and it ended up peaking on Billboard Hot 100 at uh, number 65, which might I add, Limp Biscuit never had a song on Billboard's Hot 100 in the top 20. So yeah. all the album sales, all the success that they had came without radio play. Because if you don't know about the Billboard Hot 100, Billboard Hot 100 is based all, completely and totally off of radio play itself. It's for the singles. They never had anything that had a lot of radio play. They might have been on MTV, TRL, this and that. They may have been on some alternative rock stations, but even then, they did not get the love and adoration of mainstream radio like a lot of the musicians at that time really had. Well, there was there was a small effort by the mainstream to try to gatekeep them. For example, the name. Um, that became a thing that, that they talked about in the histories of the band is that they always tried to get them to change the name. And they refuse to do it because what the name the name is should be the clue. The, and this is what Fred Durst is essentially saying is the name is meant to be the clue that the band doesn't take itself seriously. If you can't get pat like he literally said, like, hey man, if the name of our band is gonna turn you off so much, then we don't want you listening to our music. We don't want the fans that aren't gonna be able to get past the offensive thing that we're trying to do for shock value. Um, another band that I really love and admire and think is like just like one of the best things to come out in the last 20 years is a band called Diarrhea Planet from Nashville. Um, very much the same mentality. They started the band and they named it Diarrhea Planet specifically because they were like, you know what we really hate? Like all these Belmont kids around Nashville that think, you know, oh, we go to this prestigious art school, you know, we're we're so cool, you know, and they did it to piss off hipsters, you know, and um, so Limp Biscuit is actually the name itself is doing that to piss you off and it worked. <laughs> it worked. planet. Yeah. Um, now, John, I want to talk a little bit about what you were saying earlier. I don't a lot of the dynamics that you're describing, I think, are more modern. Um, and I mean, I, I understand that, you know, a lot of when Limp Bizkit came out, you were a really young kid. And so, you know, the things, these these clashes between the elite and the, the poor are became much more pronounced. And those dynamics and those kinds of conversations weren't really a thing, you know, back then. Um, people oh, were no, really it was, paying attention to that. It was certainly a thing stuff. back then. It was a thing back then, but it wasn't like you and I are on the street having a conversation about that. Well, That's yeah, a that conversation that at that time is happening in academia, you know, yeah. there, um, is a, there is a whole movement of like bigger media. I mean, like, yes, like MTV and music media was very much in favor of Limp Bizkit. Yes. But like 
for Woodstock 99, which we'll talk about when we get to controversies. Big media like ABC, CNN, Fox News, etc. turned against Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit completely. Like they all over them, you know, like helicopter blades raining poop all over you. Like a diarrhea snow. planet. <laughs> <laughs> like diarrhea so, planet, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a much like when I say like media, like people love Fred Durst, people love Limp Bizkit, and they still do today. And it's not because of, you know, because, you know, we've taken the time to, like, take a step back and realize, like, we can't blame one band for everything at Woodstock. Right? Like, but, like, when Bill Clinton comes out and says, hey, this is Fred Dursk's fault of Limp Bizkit. Like, Limp Bizkit should have taken a stage on this, you know, and all that stuff. And, like, plus, let's be honest, Limp Bizkit's, like, rock and roll vibe of, like, fuck you, I'm going to do whatever I want to, you know, right, type mentality. I'm not, I'm not gonna do what you tell me to do type, you know, rock and roll embodiment of like, well, like the true roots of rock and roll and going against the move, the mainstream. It's very much politically motivated. Like, whether or not you want to believe that they are, all their songs are politically motivated, because let's be honest, they're not. They don't have that kind of lyrical depth. Because like you said, it's club music. It's supposed to be fun. But at the same time, there's a true sense of anger and frustration. And like, there is. There is an angry like energy to the anger music, and frustration. Right is it may, it may not have a lyrical direction right like it says like i'm angry at these people for stealing my bike on the street kind of direction but it has a there is no direction but that's part of the beauty well, of limp Bizkit's music it, like when you listen to it and you're ang- and like you're like this music's angry and it's making me angry i'm angry because my wife cheated on me and like the dude next to me is like i'm angry because somebody stole my tractor like that's that's the wonder of like his music that he did because it was very it was very rage against the machine but without that political direction i think you actually nailed it the yeah. am, the ambiguous the ambiguity of the anger is actually some of the magic of a song like break stuff which wasn't covered in the lyrics but is worth bringing up because you know that song is often really misinterpreted um according to durst what he says he says that that song is you know people think it's just about like going out and and just destroying everything but it's really not about that it's really about the feeling of rage that you have at being bullied and about fighting back against people that are bullying you or things that are putting you down and it's meant to be a general just kind of like f you to everything because he wanted every one to be able to hear themselves in the music and to be able to identify with that. And I think that's really powerful in and of itself, like to just be, you know, um, able to make something that everyone can pinpoint. Oh yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not, you know, getting my car stolen and I'm, you know, mad at that or whatever, but I'm mad at this, or maybe I'm not being oppressed by this guy over here, but I'm being oppressed by somebody and it's pissing me off, you know, um, or I'm mad at my partner, or I'm mad at, you know, my mom or my dad or whatever. I mean, like everybody's got a reason to be pissed at something and break stuff. I think is one of those songs where you listen to it, no matter what is actually happening, you could be like, yeah, man, that's <laughs> that's what's happening to me today, you know? And so there's a beautiful, there's a beauty in the universality of that statement. And I think you, you touched on that really well. Honestly, Alex, you just opened my eyes. I always thought break stuff with, you know, lyrics like, I pack a chainsaw, I skin your ass raw. 
I thought it was about being a lumberjack. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was, you know, um, you know, a common common misinterpretation, actually. Oh, um, well, yeah, yeah. yeah common I am a lumberjack, and that's all right. Hey, <laughs> okay, just make fun of me because I trim my beard. That's why. Real quick, when we're ra while we wrap the lyrics, I, I did want to point this out. Is one of the things that really opened my eyes to to Limp Biscuit is going on and watching actual hip hop fans react to their music today. Go and watch those guys that have those hip hop reaction channels and whatever, and like, or those reaction video channels. Watch those guys hear Limp Biscuit for the first time. You know what everybody's reaction is? Is that, oh, this sucks. Everybody's like, this goes hard. These guys, like everyone, every like watch people react to Roland. At the end of the video, everyone's doing that dance, you know? Like people buy it, why? Because it's, Fun because it's like got that club rap feel and a lot of people that that are really steeped in hip-hop culture respect fred durst they don't crap on him like we do they're like dude this guy's got bars this guy's for real this guy actually has something to offer and he comes across like a real hip-hop person and that's i think the the mode that we need to understand and they helped me see that that limp biscuit isn't this isn't some band that you know is like this rock and roll you know legends these guys are hip-hop these guys are more a hip-hop band than they are a rock band they've got real cred they've got um the dj why am i blanking on his name right now you lethal. you had it earlier dj lethal who is in house of pain you know like oh by the way if you hate jump around and rolling he's the person that you really have to hate um and uh <laughs> you know not to mention they had literal rap beef <laughs> with like several artists eminem snoop dogs showing up in their uh, videos i'm gonna get into it um, i'm gonna get into it yeah yeah exactly so like we need to understand limp biscuit as being more of a part of hip-hop culture which i made which i think is why i think they get a lot of the hate is because they fought again that intersection right they're not fully over here they're not fully over here and so there's this we see them as oh they're not really rock and roll or they're not good rock and roll they're just like half-ass rock and roll and then they're also half-ass rap but you know what rap culture is like this is rap we love it let's get down you know why can't we do that right. why can't we as a rock culture take off these 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 lenses that are that are frankly you know rooted in some really problematic thinking um about artistry um that you know without getting into the whole critical race theory stuff like it's a very eurocentric rock rock culture is a very eurocentric straight male mindset and the further we can get away from that the better off we are so there's one last thing that i wanted to cover you know we've gone over the three songs with the lyrics i also want to cover performances with limp biscuit so they're known for extremely high energy and entertaining live shows. Fred Durst is a master frontman. If you've ever seen any of their shows, video, in person, anything like that, he can command an audience like few frontmen lead singers I have ever seen. Wes Borland is one of the strangest, most bizarre, but oddly fascinating guitarists to watch. You know, he wears full body paint, masks, uniforms, and all around this just crazy stage attire. And it's mesmerizing to watch him move about the stage in, in almost alien-like ways. Um, if you've never seen Limp Biscuit live, go on YouTube and look up the 2021 Lollapalooza set. Yes. It's an yes. hour of high energy 
It's fun songs the entire time with Fred just holding the entire crowd in the palm of his hands. And it went viral due to Fred Durst's odd dad vibes costume and demeanor. It was kind of ironic, though, considering that he was trying to portray a look and the demeanor of the same dads that made him a scapegoat at the tail end of the 90s. Uh, you can really tell from this performance, though, that they just want to have a good time and they want all the fans to enjoy the show and let loose for a bit. And one thing with their performances that that I truly appreciate is for them, it, it's not all about the money. They recently stopped selling merchandise online and at shows. They're not trying to gouge fans for anything like this. They did two tours. One, Ladies Night in Cambodia in 1998, where all women received free entry, which was a f***ing genius move because it boosted Limp Biscuit's popularity with female fans. And then in 2000, Napster sponsored the Back to Basics tour. Um, Napster, like... I think they gave him $1.8 million for this, this tour. It was a small one month long tour with uh, Cypress Hill and they allowed, they had it at smaller venues. Every venue was about three to 5,000 uh, uh, people uh, capacity places. And it was completely free to all fans. And you have to remember this is 2000. This is at the height of hot dog flavored water. This is like when, everything is starting to come together for this band the the absolute last and they're missing out on money they did not make a dime off of that tour cypress hill did not make a dime off of it and it's really cool to see and fred durst actually said in a press conference i haven't heard one thing bad from the fans that was negative uh there's millions of people saying it was not a good thing everybody in the music industry everybody whose paychecks depend on doing anything uh on the internet Sometimes when bands become popular, they forget why they're there in the first place. And we just want to give something back to the fans. So it's wonderful to see something like that. They're, they're not douchebags that are in it for the money. They're not trying to sell their soul for a little bit of money. They're just there to have a good time and to make sure everybody else has a good time. I want to piggyback off that last thing you said, which is, again, you have to understand the context in which that took place, right? People listening to this may not understand what Napster was to the music industry, but at the time, it was basically an ex downloading music was an existential threat to the music industry. The music industry is a money making machine, right? They're pulling in all these CD sales, they're pulling in all this money. Well, you know what the music industry was doing at that time? They were putting out CD after CD where there was one good song on it, everything else was trash and you had to buy this CD for $20, okay, that's double your Spotify subscription to listen to one song that you like, okay? That's a bad deal. And so people started looking at Napster, looking online, understanding now we can download MP3s, right? We can put together CDs that have 20 songs that we like and we can do it for $0, okay? So the music industry, guess what? They got pissed. They did not like Napster. They hated Napster. Napster was the enemy, okay? This whole thing about Metallica suing, the whole, you know, downloading becoming illegal. This is a huge, huge national controversy. And what did Limp Biscuit do? They went on a tour sponsored by Napster. And another thing that, like, I mean, this is punk rock as all get at, okay? This is like one of the biggest, like, FUs they could You can say up. 
I'll censor it, Alex. It's okay. Okay, this was f***ing punk rock, okay? And I really <laughs> respect it. The other thing, I mean, granted, Napster did throw $1.8 million at him, so that wasn't punk, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, my point being is, like, to be to do that tour, be sponsored by them, and not only do that, but it parts of the tour, they would, like, perform in, like, a cage, uh, like, in, like, surrounded by the fans themselves. Like, it was, like, way so this was an experience that was that was pretty different and i thought that was really cool i just want to point out that aspect of the tour it's a very populist men there's a populist mentality to this band that i think like all of us in 2023 probably can really appreciate so you would say that napster's tour was controversial da -da -da. join us next week for part two Parlay Radio is a journalistic educational commentary podcast hosted by Jay Bain, John Coleman, and Devin Hughes. On the mention of bands and materials used, we are protected by fair use and copyright as we provide criticism and commentary through satirical means. We don't own the rights to any bands or stories mentioned, but we do have the right to offer criticism and commentary. Incidental music is provided by Cloudkicker, and Creative Commons tracks in the public domain. If you have a band or suggestion for the show, you can find us on Facebook at Parlay Radio, on Instagram at Parlay Radio Podcast, or on TikTok at Parlay Radio. You may also email us at parlayradio at gmail.com. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to our show if you enjoy what you hear. Thank you for listening.